This is Top Floor episode 55. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 55. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Vonda Freeman grew up skirting child labor laws in the restaurant business. Arriving in Charleston, South Carolina, right after high school, Vonda, like so many of us, including me, thought she would work in restaurants until she figured out what she wanted to do with her life. When the late nights got to be a little too much, she made the jump to working for a wine distributor. After a series of relatively unbelievable events that I will let her tell you about, Vonda's wine career led her to Indigo Road Hospitality Group, where she serves as the wine director for the company's almost 30 restaurants. Today, Vonda and I are going to talk about wine, wine, and more wine. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Lonnie. Here's what Lonnie says. I love working in fine dining restaurants, but I also want to do something that gives back to the community. How can I do both? I think this is a great question for you because I know that you do a lot of community service and community projects. What do you think, Vonda? Oh, I think for starters, I love that. I love that that's the question because there are so many areas of every community that need support. And I think that um, there's so many areas of need. I feel like you can do anything from trying to be a mentor to whether it be just younger professionals or or, or high school students that are doing like we did and trying to figure out exactly what you want to do with your life, trying to show them the path of the restaurant industry. So there's a lot of mentoring projects. If there's not one in your community, I would say go to a local high school, go to um, a local community college and maybe start that program. Anyone can be a mentor. It doesn't have to, everybody thinks they hear that term and they think, oh, it's, it's so intimidating. But I think that is one thing you can do anywhere that you want to look you're going to find something and you kind of have to find what fits you as well uh, because we all want to be impactful, but we also want it to be something that's really from our heart. And I think that's the biggest advice I can give you. And you can find it. There's plenty of opportunities. All of those are great ideas. The thing I would add is fundraising for important organizations almost always happens around food and beverage. And so just because you're a server or a chef in a fine dining restaurant doesn't mean that the work you are doing for your job isn't impactful in the community. Absolutely. Like so many guests I've interviewed, also like myself, you started working in restaurants because you could just make so much more money doing that than working in retail or at a movie theater or whatever the case may be. Can you tell us about your first restaurant job? Yes. And I have to say, I have not confessed this to anyone but you in my entire history. So thank <laughs> you for pulling the secret out. Um, I grew up in a small town in West North Carolina, in Hendersonville, North Carolina to be specific. And um, my first 
restaurant experience was in a restaurant called Po Folks, which we actually had to look up <laughs> to see if it still um, existed. I was 15 years old. And I think I'd done babysitting up until that point, but I came from a family that you worked. From the time you could walk, you worked. It was my first experience to learn, number one, how I could make so much money. I remember going home and I had worked a double. I had worked all day shift into the night and I had $100 from working oh, a double. Oh, wow. Now, back in, you know, whatever that was, tell my age, um, 1987-ish, 88-ish, it was a lot of money working yeah. for a day when you're a kid. So because I did that, and I really enjoyed the people I worked with. I started picking up shifts as much as I could. So going back to kind of the family, that's probably my first experience working with a team that I loved going to work. Every time I walked through the door, we loved each other. We cared about each other. We supported each other. I didn't know anything. And they wanted to take me under their wing. The funny thing that happened though, because I was 15, and I was picking up all these shifts. I mean, working doubles on weekends, working after school. It was about, I don't know, about a week or so before my 16th birthday. And they were talking about giving me a cake or something. And one of the managers go, they was like, well, how, how old are you going to be? His name is Ben. I can't remember his last name, but Ben goes, well, how old are you going to be? And I said, I'll be 16. With space just dropped. <laughs> and he was like, you've been working like 35 hours a week. and I said, I have. He said, there are child labor laws that are in place. And he said, we can't have you work that. Now that I know this, he just had no idea. I guess he had looked at my paperwork. There was no <laughs> HR back then. I don't right. think. Anyway, so, but, it, you know, I turned 16 a week later, they could, they could work me to death, which I continue to do for a while. <laughs> That's so awesome. So we looked up Po Folks. There are six <laughs> Po Folks restaurants still around. And ironically enough, two of the six are in my hometown in Bay County, Florida. So and we are going to go forever yes. in Florida at the same time. We're going to yes, do Yes, 100%. I went there for the Sadie Hawkins dance in like, when I was like in ninth or 10th grade, Sadie Hawkins was when you, the, this is how different things are. Cause I don't think this could ever happen today, but Sadie Hawkins was, un, was unique because the girl asked the boy to the dance and then you wore matching shirts and you ate dinner at Poe folks. I really can't believe we're talking about that. <laughs> I can't. When I said that to you, I was like, "There's no way she's going to know what I'm talking about." And you did. So I love you that much more for knowing that. <laughs> it's the chicken and dumplings for me. Yes, yes, I mean, yes. come on. So I remember when my sister and her husband opened their first restaurant, and they did a stint in Charleston fine dining, much like you did. They deliberately focused on gourmet sandwiches for lunch, brunch foods on the weekend because they did not want to work the late nights that they had had to pull in the fine dining world. I know you ultimately had a similar experience where you got sick of late nights and that led you to working for a wine distributor instead. What was that experience like? Well, it was interesting because I was the ripe age of 29 and was having a midlife crisis saying that I just, I <laughs> the could first not of many, work, I hope. <laughs> right. I thought I've had many since then, many, many. But I knew I loved the restaurant industry. But yeah, the late nights being on my feet, believe it or not, I was never much of a party person. So the late nights, I, I wake up early. I wake up at 5 a.m. I have 
pretty much my whole life. And, um, <laughs> and your coworkers are just going to bed at that time. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and so it just, it just didn't fit with what I, what my lifestyle, what I wanted it to be. So I wanted to get out and I love the industry. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And someone said, well, you should be in sales. You're really good at talking to people. And I was like, well, what do I want to sell? <laughs> and somebody said, what have you thought about wine? So I was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, I wish I could tell you there was some like big moment where the clouds parted and the sun rained down and I had a glass of wine in my hand and I realized (laughs) I wanted to be what I am now, but it's not. So I started pursuing distributors and I found a really small distributor. We all have to start small to give me a job. I actually looked back last week. Now, to be transparent, I was 29. I'm 49 today. I'll be 50 in two days, but I'm still 49. So it was 20 years ago. I made my first year working for that distributor $24,000. Not a lot of money. So in saying that, I still had to work at night to supplement my income. So I was sales rep during the day, you know, running routes, which I had the worst route in the entire world. Of course, they give you the terrible route. And, but I still worked at night because I knew what I wanted to do. And someone told me, said, if you can get through that first year, it will get better. Something interesting happened while you were working for the wine distributor that sort of gave you a push into a better route. Am I right about that? Oh, yes. There's actually a funny story that goes along with it. So I had been working for the distributor maybe, I don't know, four to six months. And my wine knowledge at that point was still very minimal, even though I had been in service industry and and with wine service. And so I had the B and C accounts, which is what they call them, which I was very comfortable with. And I was still trying to get my my feet underneath me. And we had a uh, a sales rep who was the who covered downtown Charleston. Downtown Charleston has always kind of been this, this buzz in in the restaurant industry, where incredible restaurants, great wine programs, all these different things, but really difficult wine buyers, really difficult psalms. And so there was a guy who had that territory. Well, like many people, unfortunately, in our industry, he had a bit of a, a drinking problem. And I got a call. Oh gosh, I, I feel like it was on a Thursday morning, like going into the weekend, that um, one of our delivery trucks went missing. <laughs> and we were trying to, it was, I knew the buzz was one on where this delivery truck go. Well, it turns out that our number one sales rep that covered downtown Charleston was found with the delivery truck, <laughs> very inebriated and passed out in kind of the middle of nowhere. Oh my God. So I get a call from my boss and he said, so Mr. We'll call him Sam. Sam is clearly out of the company. <laughs> we need you to pick up the downtown Charleston route today. And here, here's the people we need to call on. And I'll, I'll even use a name here because I don't think he would care. So one of the accounts was Peninsula Grill, which a lot of people, if you've ever been to Charleston, you know Peninsula Grill. His name is Dennis Perry. Love him. Love him to this day. He was a difficult Psalm and wine buyer. And I had to go see him on a Thursday after he had had this wonderful sales rep who knew everything about wine. I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I went, I parked outside. I think I sat for about a half an hour, almost in tears going, dear God, he's going to yell at me. He's going to hate me. What am I going to do? I went in and I decided that my plan of attack was to say, introduce myself and say, look, I know that I do not have as much wine knowledge as it requires to call on you. 
if you can help me and tell me what you want me to bring you, I will follow through. I will do everything that I say I'm going to do. And I kind of listed this off. It totally disarmed him and his posture relaxed. And he became a mentor for me going forward because he would literally take, back then we didn't have laptops. We had like books with a list of all of our, our wines. He would go through and say, bring me this, 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 and this. I would take it to him the next week. He would teach me about the wine that I was bringing to him. <laughs> That's amazing. I think it takes a lot of courage to be honest like that and say, look, I have no idea what's going on, but I promise you I'll do everything yeah. I can to learn. I, you know, I don't know that I would have been brave enough to admit to something like that, especially in my 20s. I had no choice. I, I, was like, <laughs> I have nothing else. I have nothing else to be, to be honest. That makes sense. So you officially met the man who is now your boss when he was consulting for Crew Cafe. But I think you had actually met a little earlier. Can you talk about how you started working with Steve Palmer? Sure. So I was still the same with the same company that I was previously talking about. And um, I got a call. We, there's a restaurant in um, Charleston, Crew Cafe, owned by John Zucker's incredible. It's been, I wish I knew how long it had been around for, but um, right close to the, to the market downtown. And um, I got a call that someone there wanted to meet with a, a sales rep because they were consulting with John trying to better his wine program. So I went in and my boss, the same boss that had just sent me in to meet Dennis Perry <laughs> said, you know, this guy, Steve Palmer, he used to be the Somme at Peninsula Grill. And at this point, I'm like, why am I being haunted by <laughs> Peninsula Grill? <laughs> That's crazy. So I went in, I, I said, well, you know, it worked last time. So I'm going to go with the same approach that I did this time. And I went in, I met Mr. Palmer, sat down, shook his hand. I kind of went through the same thing. I really want to learn from you. Uh, I, I'm, I'll, I promise I'll give you good service, all these things. So we started working on the wine list and we had gone back and forth I want to say for about four or five weeks and kind of developed a friendship. And we were, I think we were tasting wine out at, uh, somewhere having appetizers. It was like happy hour time and we were just tasting wines, which we do often. But halfway through the meeting, he looks at me and he says, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> and I said, from, from a few weeks ago, like I, I didn't know what he meant. <laughs> I have not had a head injury today. Thank you. Right. And he said, uh, you used to bartend at the Windjammer, didn't you? And I did. The Windjammer, for those of you who don't know, beachfront bar, loud music, great bands, a lot of alcohol consumed. Grand Marnier shots, that was definitely a thing back in, in, in South Carolina. I think we, we kind of um, started that whole phenomenon. And I still was like, I did. And he said, you refused to serve me and my friends when we would come in. <laughs> My face just dropped. And then I connected the dots, which talk about connecting the dots. Um, we talk about that in our company a lot, but it hit me and I was like, oh my God. So for anyone that knows Steve Palmer, um, he, he hasn't had anything to drink in, I think, over 25 years. But back in the day, he played pretty hard. And I remember I would be bartending at the Windjammer and he would come in with his downtown buddies. This was back when you know, Magnolias and Blossoms and all those restaurants had just opened in Charleston and they thought that there was nobody could touch them. They were making ridiculous money. They were obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And when they would walk in, I would walk to the opposite end of the bar and refuse to serve them and have one of the guys serve them. So I was fumbling. I was like, I'm so sorry. And he goes, don't you dare apologize. He said, you had every right to feel the way you did. So apparently I had met him at least 10 years prior at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that is so unbelievable. How do you think that some of the issues, I don't know, here are the things we're hearing about in the news right now. Inflation, supply chain problems, these natural disasters that are being caused by climate change. How does that kind of stuff play out on a restaurant wine list? It is honestly one of my biggest challenges right now. So I think anyone that has any knowledge about not just the wine industry, but just where the world is right now, supply chain issues are a very real thing. Inflation is a very real thing. All of these, I call it the perfect storm because those two factors are occurring at the same time where we've had major wine regions, Champagne, Loire, Burgundy, Willamette Valley, Napa Valley, who have either had really extreme weather conditions, the frost, you know, basically wiping out 60% of their crop. They've had fires in, in Oregon. They've had fires in California. So we're, we're definitely at a time where things have been so great for so long. And now we're at this point where I even look at my, my, my Oak Steakhouse, my steakhouse concept. And I say, okay, how do I run a wine program with limited Napa, limited Willamette and limited Champagne and Burgundy? Because those are my my four main regions, and I actually just did a um, I did a conference a couple weeks ago, and I was a speaker. I was very very um, flattered to be asked at a uh, conference called Texom, and I went in. I knew what Texom was about, but I didn't really know what it was about until I got there and actually participated in it. And the what we spoke on with my panel was how not to have a homogenous wine list because so many people. Like if I wanted to, I could look at my steakhouse and say, I want nothing but name recognition. I want nothing but uh, but ratings and all these different things. And again, this goes back to actually creating those boundaries. If you start making too many lines and too many boundaries, you box yourself in. You have to be open at this time more so than ever to saying, look, I've been tasting frantically like an Italian, South American, looking at regions that even maybe... Three or four years ago, when you tasted those wines, maybe they weren't really up to snuff. They weren't exactly what you were looking for. Taste them again, because you need to allow wineries and wine regions to evolve, and they will get better. Wines in Napa, wines in Burgundy, they weren't always fabulous. They really weren't. So (laughs) I think you need to be open to that. Is it hard to get a guest to understand something like, oh, sorry, we don't have a Napa cab this week or whatever the case? Oh, if, if we said we have no Napa cab, <laughs> I don't, I, I would be getting so much hate mail. I don't even know what I would do, but you know, it, yes, it, it's, there are going to be guests that are going to walk in the door and they know what they want. They're going to order it and they really don't want your input because they know more than you do. Okay. We, it, if you've ever worked as a server or a SOM, you know that there are those guests that they know more about wine because they like brand A or C or B and that's what they drink at home. But I do think that there's an opportunity on a lot of different levels because people are being a little more price conscious as far as what they're spending now. I think there is an opportunity to say, hey, you know, try this. We at our, at our restaurants, we always offer a splash in the glass. We always offer, if we open a bottle and you don't like it, 
you're not committed to it, but you know, you, you have to get the wine in people's mouths to get them to, to open up to it. It's not always going to work with all of your guests, but there, that, that percentage of guests that it will work for, there's an opportunity there and it's fun. I think that's a great segue into my next question. So do you remember the movie Sideways? Paul Giamatti's character was such a flippin' snob and he refused to drink Merlot. Like his lines are like, if they are serving Merlot, I'm leaving or, you know, something like that. That movie came out in 2004. And I think it was after a pretty long period of time when Merlot was just the hot great to drink, right? I think we probably recently had something like that with Pinot Noir where definitely still in it with rosé, which is fine with me. I hope that never ends. Can you talk a little bit about some of the wine trends that may not have been so obvious to an idiot like me, but that you've seen come and go? It's just like anything. You know, there's a new trend, I feel like, every day. But as far as over the past 10 years or so, I mean, let's be honest, we all lived through, we all remember sideways. We all lived through the, um, gosh, I think even prior to that was the whole Shiraz boom from Australia. And then Australia fell off the map and they're slowly starting to come back and you're starting to really have some great wines. You know, then the, the, the Argentinian Malbec kind of wave that came through. I think the biggest thing now is probably the orange wine, which I have. <laughs> I have oh, I'm opinions. so glad you brought that up. What yeah. is that? Well, it, it depends. So my understanding of orange wine, orange wine is something it's made in a very natural process where the least, and I'm, I may get this wrong, so there's an orange wine lover that wants to like send me an email and tell me I'm wrong. That's completely fine. But orange wine, it, it's a very natural made wine. When you're producing what you call winemaking, I hate to say winemaking because we try to get away from that. There's a lot of different things that you can do to wine to make it have the same, the flavor profile that you want your end result to be. I look at winemakers just like chefs. I say there is no right or wrong. Let's be honest, there's some bad wine out there. We all know that, but we won't talk about those. But every winemaker has a certain flavor profile that he's trying to attain. And natural orange wine is something that's made um, what they call in like a... Um, in a reductive style where it's almost like a little bit oxidized, but it's, um, so that's kind of the orange color. That's where it comes from. And there's not a lot of intervention. There's typically no oak. Um, they don't really do much to that to get the actual final outcome. And there are some beautiful, beautiful orange wines out there still and sparkling. However, I feel like a lot are being passed off or being sold to certain accounts that they're orange when they're actually wines that are turning and gone bad. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I, I've experienced a couple that have been presented to me and I actually had a bad experience in Charleston at a location, not mine, thank goodness, where someone was pouring a wine saying it was orange and it was bad. It was oxidized. It was matterized. It was not drinkable. And um, so I, I think that... <sighs> Trying to trying to communicate to the wine community is kind of like, let me back up for a second, it's kind of like Chardonnay. People love to say, I do not like Chardonnay. That is, that is I hate to say an ignorant statement, it's, it's an uneducated statement because there are so many ranges of Chardonnay from unoaked to partially oaked to heavily oaked. There are some beautiful wines out there. I like oak on my Chardonnay. And so I think that that's the hardest thing. If I had to pick one thing in the wine industry that really I wish we could make more, um, we could clarify for people 
which is impossible because of the regions and, like I said, winemaking styles that are out there. Just because it has a great name or it has a wine label like an orange wine, it doesn't mean the, the flavor profile is going to be the same. And um, so, again, you know, with orange wine, it's tough because uh, people, I think a lot of people do love it. I feel that it, it right now is such a great opportunity to revisit regions, revisit wines, revisit producers that maybe you didn't love five years ago. There's so much wine out there. You don't ever want to put an X on boxes. I don't like them. I don't like them. I don't like them. Try it. You know, open yourself up to it because focuses change your wineries. Our winemaking styles change. Winemakers change. And I think that sometimes you might discover that someone's like, wow, this wine's really beautiful today. Five years ago, I didn't like it at all. And I will venture that your taste can change too. I'll get into this a little bit more later, but my tastes have dramatically changed since I thought I only wanted to drink the fullest body Cabernet on the list. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? Yeah. One of the things I learned about you when I was doing my investigation, I mean, research, is that you are a Saki advisor with the Saki School of America. What does that mean? And how is learning about sake the same or different from learning about wine? Um, I would say it's completely different. I mean, obviously, we're, we're still dealing with you know the sensory factors about tasting. We are talking about pairing with wine and with um, sake and food. But sake is incredibly different. I, I did my certified sake advisor course with Sarah Guterbach, who is with New York Mutual Trading Company. And she is like my sake guru. I have two of them, actually, that are just amazing. Um, someone that is passionate about sake, for me, is they're, they're not just passionate about sake. They're passionate about a culture. They are passionate about a food. They're, you know, Japanese cuisine, Japanese culture. You have to have such an understanding of the country and the culture and everything that, that embodies it to really wrap your head around what it takes to going in to make sake. The course is, you know, it, it's it's much like any other course. You have to be able to go through and taste sake and discern the flavor profiles, talk about the different regions, talk about the, how you make it. And it's totally different than making wine. Uh, I remember she, her saying, Sarah saying, we talked to Pasha, you know, if you take grapes, um, you pick them, you throw them in a bucket and you leave them there for five days, you're going to come back. They're probably going to be bubbling because fermentation is a natural it's a natural occurrence. It, if you take rice and you, you know, you harvest your rice, you bring in, you put it in a bucket with water, you're going to come back in a week and it's going to be rice in water. <laughs> it, 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 so it's more, it's a brewing process. So it's very different because I've never been that knowledgeable on, on spirits or on beer. And so for me, not only was it a good segue to learn about sake, but I learned about, okay, this is, this is a different, this is a different method, a different preparation but still has kind of the same end result. I was fortunate enough to, to visit Japan, gosh, February of 2020. We weren't quite sure we were going to make it back into the Oh state my goodness. We kept hearing about this thing called COVID and we were in Japan and they were talking about, you know, basically shutting everyone out of the U.S. And we were going, does that mean us? They were like, don't worry, let's move on to the next brewery. And I was like, no, this is the problem. <laughs> this oh, be wow. But, you know, I, I think for me, wrapping my head around sake, it, it's much like when you're in the wine business. If you've never visited Napa, or you've never been to a winery, you hear the process, but you don't fully understand it until you experience it, until you see them picking grapes, crushing, going through 
bottling, barrel tastings, all those different things. That's so interesting. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, tangible tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. So this is what I was talking about when I said before that your taste can change. As I get older, I find myself less and less able to tolerate red wine. Even like the smallest amount. I mean, I'm not talking about knocking back a couple bottles, <laughs> a glass leaves me feeling horrible the next day. So one hypothesis that I have is that we tend to buy on the less expensive end of the market. Um, so basically, this is a practical, tangible tip for my life only. And listeners can skip this part. I need your help to convince my husband to stop buying cheap wine. What do you think is really causing this reaction here? Okay, well, th- there's a lot of different things. And I will, I will just put a disclaimer here. This is strictly my opinion and my experience as well. I think that, yes, oftentimes when you're buying cheap, less expensive, what are we going to call them, wines, a lot of times there is a lot, there is sugar added. There might be a little more heavy handed oak to these wines because they're taking actual juice that's not quite as at the quality that we're talking about when we're talking about restaurant quality. Um, if we're talking about grocery type wines, they have to do something to make them taste better. Okay. Just like with really cheap food, what do we do? We fry it <laughs> to make it taste good. <laughs> you can fry anything and it tastes great. True you fact. can add butter to anything and it's going to make it better. You can add salt, it's going to make it better. Fried butter and salt. I'm a southerner. I love all those things. But you know, when too you have too much of those things, it definitely starts to affect you. So I think that that could be part of the equation. People talk about sulfites and they talk about sulfite-free wine. That that was a big thing for a long time. There are a lot of producers that add sulfites. It's a preservative to wine so that it it lasts a little bit longer. And um, I don't necessarily know that that is a lot of the the problems or that that people are feeling when they have the hangovers and the headaches or just feel sluggish the next day. That could be part of it. But sulfites are, they're they're natural. They're going to be in just about every wine. So when you see a wine that says no sulfites added, it doesn't mean there's no sulfites in the wine. Like much like the marketing of no sugar added to any food, doesn't mean there's no sugar in it. It just means they didn't add any more. (laughs) But I, I really, for me, in my experience of drinking wine, and I've had my fair share, I think that it, it, it's such a bigger picture. People try to blame it on the wine. I think it's how much water have you had that day? How much food have you had that day? How much rest did you have the night before? Okay. So I guess I can't play this back and get the most expensive bottle of wine that I wanted. So thanks for nothing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, another trend that I have seen come up more recently is chilled red wine of almost every varietal. I'm certain that experts have been talking about and doing this for a really long time, but it it seems to be appearing in more mainstream conversations, like the sort of foodie accounts on Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. What do you think about chilling red wine? Is that something that you've always been doing? Are are we idiots if we haven't been? Like, What are all of your thoughts? I have been doing it for a very long time. Now, I, I will have to point out, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. So for anyone that has been here, 
it's hot. Okay. <laughs> September is today's like the first day outside that it's been really beautiful and there's no humidity. So a couple of thoughts there. Anytime you're talking about anything, whether it's wine or whether it's a, um, even if you're cooking with a sauce that has alcohol in it, or if you're talking about even a perfume, anything that has alcohol in it, when it's warmer, the alcohol is going to be more present because it, it evaporates, you know, into the air about alcohol. If you pour rubbing alcohol in your hand, you can almost feel it happening. So when you chill wines down, it kind of slows down that process a little bit. I feel like, I feel like you're getting more of the actual fruit aromatics of a wine than you normally would. Oh, That's my first thing. I think also we, I, I would love to know when this was, and if there's anyone out there that knows, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. When someone decided that everyone says red wine should be at cellar temperature. Okay, great. What is cellar temperature? When <laughs> and who even has a cellar? <laughs> or, or, or even room temperature? Because if we if we say room temperature in France in 1887 is not room temperature in Charleston, South Carolina in 2022. So I, I think you kind of have to look at that because, yes, red wine can be served at room temperature. But if it's hot outside, if it's hot in your house, if it's hot anywhere at a restaurant, the wine is going to be affected in, in a way that more than likely is negative. If, if it's served at a cooler temperature, I feel like you're going to get more of the fruit. You're going to get more of a flavor profile. If it's a little bit warmer, I think you're definitely going to get more alcohol. So um, I almost always, even with a, like a Cabernet or a Zinfandel, yes, I drink red Zin. I love it. I'm so glad. I really do like uh, red wine to be a little on the cooler side. and But I'm sort of afraid to... I don't know, admit that because I'm afraid people think that it's like my red box wine that I'm dropping a couple ice cubes in. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Obviously, I don't know a whole lot about wine. My sister, my husband are the family experts on that topic. But I do consider myself somewhat of an expert on spirits and uh, in particular classic cocktails. Do you have any favorite drinks? outside of the world of wine? Do you have a go-to cocktail or beer or anything else that you like? I love a martini. And I, I there's par- apparently been like a really big resurgence or popularity with martinis. Our PR company had said something about a couple weeks ago. And she was like, you know, we're trying to do like a martini thing with Oak Steakhouses. I'm like, oh, then I got excited about it. Um, but that's kind of my go-to. And I do like them slightly dirty. I do. What do you like gin or vodka? I think uh, I prefer vodka, although because I used to think I hated gin, kind of like the Chardonnay statement I said earlier, but <laughs> there's some beautiful gins that are being made out there. But right now, I mean, I love a nice, good, slightly dirty vodka martini. It just makes, if I'm having a bad week or a good week and it's Friday, <laughs> that's what I'll go for. I like gin martinis. So my martini is a Hendrix martini up with a twist, but I like wet martini. So you know how people are like, oh, just wave the vermouth in another room and that'll be enough vermouth for me. No, I like a lot of vermouth. So it's three to one, Hendrix Gen, Dolan vermouth, lemon twist. Perfect. You know your recipe. I love that. (laughs) People ask, like if you order a martini out, the bartender gets a little bit nervous. I have also had people squeeze a lemon in for my lemon twist or squeeze a lime in, which just Mm -hmm. hurts my heart. That was one of the first things I learned. I was One of my first restaurant jobs was as a cocktail waitress. 
And I had to learn to ask up around the rocks, twist or olive, you know, all all of those things. I don't know if people get that same training anymore. I have no idea. (laughs) I'll work on that. (laughs) Yes. I'm happy to come and assist by ordering them. All right. You can give me the taster. (laughs) Awesome. Perfect. We've reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now's the time that we predict the future, maybe cast a spell or two. What is one prediction you have for the future of restaurant beverage programs? Wow. That is the hardest question you have asked me for sure. (laughs) And I, I feel like I'm being a little bit repetitive and I might I might even branch in because I, I know that we um, are going to talk about kind of just the future of restaurants just in general. But I think for beverage programs, I, I, I hate to go back to it, but I feel like people need to be really open-minded. One of the best learning experiences that I've ever had in this industry was, gosh, it was probably five or six years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe it was eight or 10. I don't know, time kind of escaped me, but... I think that being able to look at your program and doing what's right for your program and not listening to all of the stuff that's going on around you, what people are saying, you need to do, if you want a cool wine program, you need to do this. If you want an award-winning wine list, you need to do this. And it's just like anything in the world. It's we, we want to be accepted. We want to be part of the cool crowd. Don't be afraid not to be part of the cool crowd. I think now more than ever, it's so important for you to look at your program, do what's best for your location, what works for you, what works for your owners, your investors, whatever it is, and not listen to all the other racket that's around you. And be confident in that. It's okay to, to look at at someone that's presenting a wine to you that maybe they're like, they're the, they have the coolest wine book, they have the coolest spirits book, and they're presenting something to you if you don't like it and it doesn't work for your program, don't be afraid to say, you know, I understand that you, you're passionate about this product, but this doesn't work for me. And they make it look, look at you horrified, but you've got to be confident in yourself and in your knowledge. You know, you know what the right decision is and you need to stand by that. So I think I, I'm hoping that a lot of this, again, trying to be super cool, trying to get this, trying to get that. What are we trying to get? We're trying to create a beverage program that works for our concept. I think that should be everyone's focus more so than all the racket around you. I think that's excellent advice. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the restaurant business other than peer pressure on your wine list, what would it be? That I thought that was a tough question. It's actually quite easy. I, I really want to bring back the love for the restaurant industry. It has been discussed and taken apart and put together and rediscussed probably two dozen times in the past few years. The restaurant industry is suffering right now. There really is. It's um it, it's such a weird dynamic because we are busier than we've ever been, but we cannot get people who want to invest their time in this amazing amazing industry and work in a job where they're fulfilled every day, where it's exciting, where it's constantly changing, it's constantly moving. It's almost like we, we've entered a point where people would rather do the, what do you call it? Like the, almost like a factory job. They just, they just want to clock in, they want to clock out and, and not really invest themselves in, in a job and in a future. And I'm, I'm a great example when it comes to the wine business. I started working at POFO when I was 15, <laughs> uh-huh. okay? I got my first wine job as a rep when I was 29, didn't know anything about wine. And people look at me now and they're like, I want to be you. And I'm like, really? 
are you sure? And and I think that that people need to, I, I would love to see us get create a new love for the restaurant business. We are at a time right now where it's no longer a hostile work environment. I have worked in restaurants years ago. I saw a chef throw a chef knife across the room. We all ducked. Oh my and God. It, it, it landed in the side of the walk-in. Okay. I've been screamed at. I've had dishes thrown back at me. For anyone that's been in the business, you know, up until about 10 years ago, that was just the norm. It's not like that anymore. It's it's such a great way to experience that family, which is what I experienced when I was 15, that very first experience with that, that carries through to today. I love the people I work with. It's a great opportunity to make really good money. Okay. Let's be honest. There's so many different things and the growth is unbelievable. You start out as a dishwasher. You can be an expo. You can be a server. You can go into management. You can go into working for a wine company. You can go on. It's really, there's ladders to be climbed that are not quote unquote corporate. You just have to look at it differently. So, well, and I mean, it's the same with the hotel business. You know, this conversation comes up pretty often on top floor that it still remains one of hospitality as a whole restaurants, hotels, you know, all of it. It, the only industry or one of the only industries in which you can start at the literal entry level and wind up a senior vice president. CEO, chief financial officer, you know, whatever the case may be, there's there's something my friend Tammy Gillis has talked about this a lot. She that, that we have somehow erased the cachet and the sexiness of this industry and just left behind the bare bones. And I think it's, you know, we've got to figure out a way to make it more appealing because there is nothing better. There's nothing bad. I, I agree. And I, I love that statement. I haven't heard that. So thank you for sharing that with me. That That is so true. So what about you? What's next for you? And what's next for Indigo Road? Wow. I wish I had my boss on this this call because um, <laughs> we are still growing at such a rapid pace. Um, we, we've obviously switched our, our, our name from the Indigo Road Restaurant Group to Indigo Road Hospitality Group. We've, we've gone into hotels, which is something I've never experienced before. It's a very different animal. And I'm excited about it. I'm exploring it. I want to learn more about it. Um, I will never be able to read a PL for a hotel. Yes, you will. Yes, no, you will. I'm 90. I'm going to say, I need somebody to decipher this. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, but, you know, just, just really moving forward. And like I said, I'm, I'm starting to oversee more of the, the beverage program as a whole, which is very exciting for me because with the company I'm with, um, we're bringing people up that have worked with us. Like I have now have someone that's over South Carolina for wine. I'm going to hire someone from North Carolina, hopefully. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not. But we, you know, we also have someone that, that she's an amazing mixologist. So she's over like the bar program development as a whole. I think for me, as we grow as a company, I'm able to grow in my role and and to help people underneath me grow. Because let's be honest, I'm not going to be around forever doing this. So who who's going to take over after me and, and who am I going to be confident that can pick it up the ball and run with it. So I think that's it. You know, it's just trying to keep up with Steve Palmer and, and, uh, and grow as the company grows and it's exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, folks, before we tell Vonda goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Vonda. What is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Well, this is so hard. 
I, I know we had talked about maybe like some crazy drunk story, but I think we've all heard those, like, you know, wine dinner stories, people doing crazy things. And I think this kind of goes along with a point that I made earlier about being confident in who you are and, and acting with integrity. That's a big thing for me. It's a big thing for our company. If I had to choose one thing for myself is act with integrity. So this was something that happened, oh, wow, probably 10 years ago, to be honest with you a relatively new wine buyer. And so everyone was coming to me throwing deals. We want to take you here. You're fabulous. You know, they were throwing confetti in the air when they met with me <laughs> and, and all those things. And I had a company come to me and they said, uh, we want to take you to California. Well, I was like, Ooh, that sounds great. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. And I said, well, what do I need to do? Oh, well, we don't have, we don't put parameters on anything. We just want to take you. We're going to take you in. I'm sort of making this up. It's been so long ago as far as the timeline, but I think we're going to take you in October. So just between now and September, do well with our brands. Okay, I can do that. So I, I do, I, I, I'm definitely somewhat of my word. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm like, okay, let's pull some of these brands and started working with them. And this company came back to me. They're still in business today, but obviously I will not throw them under the bus. I would never do that. But they came back to me the week before we were supposed to leave. And they said, uh, we want you to put XYZ Cabernet in this one restaurant. And I was like, it doesn't work for that concept. The price point doesn't work. That XYZ Cabernet is at four other restaurants in Charleston and we do well with it. And they were like, it doesn't matter. We want it in that restaurant. And I said, but it doesn't work for my program in that restaurant. And I don't work for you. Exactly. <laughs> so I looked at them and I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in that restaurant, but I don't want to go on the trip. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, again, I'm going to do what you asked me to. You want me to put it in that restaurant? And they said, it was the Macintosh. I mean, I can tell you that the Macintosh isn't around anymore, but I'll put it in the Macintosh. That was like the new restaurant everyone wanted to be in. So I put it in that restaurant. I proceeded to take it off of every other wine list. <laughs> I called them the next day and I said, you got exactly what you wanted. It's on the list in the Macintosh. I took it off in the others. No, thank you. I don't care to go on the trip. So some people are like, okay, you're being a bitch, maybe. <laughs> but but my, my point there was, and, and I, the point that I want to make with this podcast is if you don't do anything else in, in your life, in your wine program, whatever you want to look at, act with integrity. Don't let someone ever back you into feeling like you have to do something. And in this business, I mean, I had it happen last week. Someone, well, you have to do this. I don't have to do anything, okay? Do what's best for you. Do what's best with your program. Don't be afraid to dig your heels in. Don't want something so badly that you can't walk away from it. And I think that's something that I live by every day with, with my job. And just, you know, keep your eye on the prize, what you're focused on. All these different things, all those other opportunities. I've been to Napa 20 times since then. So, <laughs> so those opportunities will come back around. But do what's best for you, what's best for your program. Fonda Freeman, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got some great tips, some ideas to chill their red wine. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. 
Thanks so much for listening today. Happy birthday, Kat. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 55. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 